Just as a warning, this episode contains some discussion of suicide. So if anything comes up for you or you know of someone in need of mental health support, call Free ADF Veterans and Family Service Open Arms on 1800 011 046 or in an emergency call 000. Hi, I'm Beck Rayner and this is the Military Life Podcast, a podcast that celebrates, empowers, supports, informs and embraces the spouses beside the military members by building connections, acknowledging our strength, focusing on self-care and our mental health. Let's do this together. Want to join a bank that just gets Defence Life? Defence Bank is one of Australia's largest customer-owned banks. They have 33 on-base branches across Australia, an award-winning banking app that allows you to do all your banking wherever and whenever you want. And with products and services tailored for ADF members and Defence spouses, you'll wonder why you didn't join sooner. Visit defencebank.com.au today and see how easy your banking can be. Hey, just a quick one to let you know that this is part two to the episode before this one. So you might want to pop out and have a listen to episode 142 before going ahead and pressing play on this one. And I raised that. And as a result of that, we then they'd started a new housing trial, which meant that you didn't have to have a job as long as you just said, like, we can't live on the base for certain reasons. They were like, okay, you can look for housing elsewhere or offered housing in Wallen or areas that were slightly closer to the city. And that came as a result of that discussion. And that was, the minister was like, oh my gosh. And I was like, yeah, I was like, I can't, he was like, that's ridiculous. That's how far you're expected to travel. And I was like, yes, because defence will not support that. And he and was able to make a change. And that like power that they hold in that space is huge and the ability for them to be able to like and those changes have massive ramifications and it didn't affect us unfortunately ice was in the same we're in the same position but it helped people who came afterwards and i think that's the biggest thing being able to push for, for the, first of all these people to recognize the power that they do hold and the ability of change that they do have when they actually want to make a change and secondly that ability to um to change the path for those who come after us and also to be able to, to have the ability to be involved in the conversation and have that unfiltered lived experience go to the people that can make those decisions yes we need people advocating for us we need organizations that are representing us but it also needs to be coupled with that lived experience because you know it's nothing like hearing it from someone who's experiencing it or has been through it for it to have that impact and then for a pilot program to then be introduced and then help other families like you said it wasn't for you some of the things that we're all speaking out on or having a voice on are not going to change for us it's for the people that we we do we just don't want that cycle to continue we want to have improvement and be able to have that voice in regard to just the, the impact that you can have by telling your story to someone with that power and someone who doesn't necessarily have that understanding but needs to have that understanding because they are the ones that are going forward and making those decisions or representing us in those positions. Yeah, exactly. And like that was huge for me just being actually felt like I was heard in that moment and then sort of see the change was quite significant in its own right. What actual psychological impact does it have on a community on individuals when they do feel like they're part of the conversation and they do feel like they have an impact in regard to okay well this is my voice is just not going to go to nowhere it's actually 
going somewhere. Like I mentioned before, we know that voicing our opinion or saying that this is not working or this worked and this should be introduced in this location, we know that defence are not going to be able to solve all our problems. But how important is it for us to actually feel like part of the conversation? Not thinking that, okay, well, I'm going to say this and they're going to fix my problem and they're going to take my solution and they're going to run with it. Just actually being part of the conversation. What kind of impact does that have on people, I guess, remaining engaged and being connected to defence life, the defence member, not having that resentment? It has a huge, a huge impact because we, if to do anything sustainably and get any fulfillment out of it, it needs to be meaningful. And if all of this sacrifice, all of these changes, all of this lack of choice is not meaningful, there's no connection, you're not being listened to or acknowledged, then it becomes very difficult to sustain. So if we feel like we are being listened to, if we feel like our story is being reflected by people around us, we feel connected, we feel included, and we feel like we can help others. It fills our cup and our cup runneth over. So, you know, increase in energy, decrease in anxiety, increase in motivation, increase in creativity. Just basically, it improves our brain function. Being connected to others helps us emotionally regulate ourselves. The people around us, we, like I said before, we're wired for connection. And if we are up in fight or flight or if we are down in dissociation or freeze, it's very difficult to connect, take in information, solve problems. If we are in that safe and secure connect, we can problem solve. We're motivated. We feel confident. We feel accepted. We feel safe. The benefits are unbelievable. It makes such a huge difference. And to feel like there is meaning in our sacrifice, in our choices in life, that we're not being swept along, that the choices that we're making are meaningful. They have an impact and that is recognised. And I know, Julia, you mentioned just before about when we're only hearing about the glossy parts of defence life, there can be this narrative created that, oh, but you get to move around the country and the defence member gets paid all this money. And, you know, there can be these misconceptions that the defence member goes away for six months and they come home and they get six months off. Like, what are you guys complaining about? So the wider community have this narrative of it being this glossy lifestyle, but then also defence partners and families also have this narrative when they enter defence life that it can be this glossy lifestyle, which, you know, there are great benefits to being a defence family. But when we aren't able to, I guess, discuss the uncomfortable bits about defence life, the challenges about defence life and experiences that aren't the typical glossy experiences, that can sometimes when people do voice their challenges and do voice their negative experiences can sometimes be seen as, I guess, a deterrent for other partners and families in regard to, oh, well, if you hear that someone had a bad experience with accessing support through this organisation, then it's going to cause other people to not even bother accessing that support, or it's going to give other people this negative view of what defence life is. But we need to hear all of those stories, don't we? We do. And I think what people miss about that is, okay, hear the negative story, but don't not approach that agency or that support for yourself. Try it out for yourself. And then if you have the same negative experience, say to that person that you've heard it from, hey, I had that negative experience and what can we do about it? Look for the formal channels where you can put in complaints. If you are dealing with the health centres and you are having a negative experience or you are not getting the assistance medically required for your service member, um, lodge the formal complaint about that to have it investigated. If you have a bad move and half of your stuff is damaged with toll, follow the official process and lodge an actual complaint. Don't just lodge your request for damages. Actually tell your story then. And 
the same thing. If you're having positive experiences, put those out there too. Those are testimonials that push people towards those services. But by the same token, any complaint or anything negative being shared, that's for them to learn a lesson from. And that is where you continuously improve your service. We don't need agencies who won't push the envelope and have a focus on continuous improvement. And to that end, I would invite the agencies that do exist as our support agencies to actually have genuine, official, continuous improvement teams. Don't just give it an email and put a KPI on that email to be monitored. Actually have the teams that we can engage in and with now because we might have representatives with DFA in each location that we can go to with a problem, but they're more there to guide you on what the regulation impact man is to check into the discretions that can be assisted there. Yes, they can take that feedback on board, but you actually need a continuous improvement team in DMFS. And they do say that they have one, but again, it's only an email that you can send something through to. We actually need to be able to engage in roundtables, in discussions. We need those personnel, not just their flows, coming to any community events. And to that end, we need to also be making sure that we're having community events in all the locations. Um, Because like Marcel said, to be able to be part of that discussion with the minister and for that to flow into a trial coming from that. I've been in this location for seven years now and the only two opportunities I have had for that have been tables that I have built and invited others to have a seat at. The uncomfortable truths need to be put on the table like anything to create a change and that's what we still haven't done. We still haven't put them on a table with the minister with the communities, go find, go hear the voices first and come to the table again and see how little things can create change. In saying that as well, are we at the point where we're fatigued in regard to surveys, research, not necessarily roundtables because we don't have a lot of those, but all of the traditional stuff that we have available to us, the, the family survey, the you can email us with feedback, you know, obviously you have to then take agency and push yourself to give that feedback and you have to be within an environment where you you feel comfortable to, and empowered to give that feedback in the first place but are we fatigued with the existing methods of feedback improvement or having a voice I am I really am um, and it's something that in my group of friends here we've been non-stop talking about that for the last six months and it's to the point where A new survey comes out and I'll share it in my group, I'll share it on my blog or page, I'll share it in my stories, I'll then go on to elaborate why you should do it, how you can follow up to hear the results of it. And like, I've got people who say, but should I genuinely do it? Like, what do you really think from behind the camera? And I'm like, I really think you should do it. But I also understand the fatigue. But also I can talk to the partners and that's who my community is. But I can't change the mentality on base when the member gets the notification. I, as the partner, don't get the notification or email that a survey is open. So there were recent ones looking into the health centres and the medical system and they were disclose to members only and if the member is so fatigued how do we get them to pass the message back home to us that it's available so we can have the choice to do it so we can look in and go well we fit that box we should do this survey that's a huge problem and I'm not sure what the answer to overcoming that fatigue is because at the end of the day the only way you're going to do that is to fix reputational damage. And that is not an easy thing for any of the agencies to do, but it is a task that they need to be focused on doing. 
I think, unfortunately, surveys are one of those things that an organisation can say that they have done that makes them look really good and gives them something that they can be like, oh, well, we surveyed people, but it doesn't, they don't have to necessarily act on any of that. And so you kind of feel like you're like, cool, I've done the survey, I've done, I've submitted it. If you even have the energy to, it's rampant in medical school as well. I've done so many this year. It seems to occur everywhere. And it's, yes, it's a great tool to kind of get a snapshot of, the questions that you want answered from an organisation perspective um, and not necessarily the, the problems that are being experienced. And they can really word them in such a way that it kind of just leaves you like, well, what even was the point? Which I actually felt there were elements of the recent family survey that left me feeling like that. And the same with the defence housing. I was like, why do I even bother? <laughs> because like, and I put in what I put in and I like in boxes where I wasn't supposed to, I added all this extra stuff because there was nowhere to put it. And it's kind of like, well, what else am I supposed to do? You guys, this is the only tool you've really given me to get feedback. I'm quite vocal in feeding back to at partner events and well, events where partners are allowed to attend and, and feeding back that sort of information as well. But yeah, I just think the surveys, man, I'm so over them. And and I think forums are really difficult because they, they're good. They're really good because you kind of have that ability to air your grievances and, and or to talk about everything that's going on. But unfortunately, only select people are invited and how they choose those people is always really interesting I find and the other side of things in terms of like communication and 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 that is that I have seen so many Facebook groups for defense partners the list is endless and it's I'm in quite a few of them and to me it seems like there's so much similarity between them and the same questions get asked in all of the groups and there's no central place or spot that people and everyone's like oh it's different in Navy it's different in Naples it's different in this thing it's different in army like I'm like well actually like it comes down to a base level similarity um ultimately which is being able to voice your concerns and voice your grievances and a lot of do crossover at the kind of the ground, grassroots level um, and yes the idiosyncrasies of each service do impact certain things but, but overall as a whole these problems exist no matter what branch of defense you're engaging with whether yeah your partner a veteran a, yeah a serving member a, you know and where you are and what service also ultimately comes down to whether you are on the lists or on the email or in the group or on the facebook group to be notified about those surveys in the first place or the information that you need to know like no one says okay well you're a defense partner let's sign you up to all these things and you'll be notified about everything so aside from the fact of having if you are in in the know with all of that stuff with the research and the surveys and all of that stuff and being fatigued by all of that on the flip side there's people that don't even know about that stuff so those voices are not even being counted so it seems to be that only a certain like you said who gets picked for the round tables only certain voices are being heard because those certain voices are the ones that know about the surveys or that aren't fatigued to the point where they still want to have a voice in those surveys. And like you, Marcel, with the family survey, it didn't quite hit the mark for me. So I ended up writing a novel alongside it and sending that email to as feedback to the, the research team. But in the first place, why are we having to send that information to the research team when there should be people, advocates, organisations who represent us who are making sure that that survey fits and is asking the questions that we need to be asked? It's like all of these things are happening. And I know from research, it takes a little while to implement. I understand all of that. But I call it the tick and flick. And that was my biggest concern when I first was invited to go to my first forum was I actually said to my son, I hope this is not just a tick and flick. And through my lived experience, I've seen one thing that we discussed come out, which has been recently announced, but it's the same conversation. How do we support members better? But what they're talking about there, 
I believe, is more about, yes, they're starting to look at partners within DVA, but this is defence as well. And when do we get to sit at the table with defence as partners and lived experience with defence to say, you need cultural change? So I'm exhausted by it and I can understand how people just walk away because life gets busy again and you think you've given all of this time and effort and passion and you've prepared to go to these forums and you've networked and and nothing changes really because we've still got defence sitting over here where it's actually happening and being created and then DVA here saying, well, we need to pick it all up. Well, no, we need to be back here with defence and say, okay, we need the round tables with defence leaders for every base, for right across the board and then trickle it down. But when we don't even see defence sitting at tables and changing anything, the aftermath is DVA. So to me, I look at it and think I am seeing the exhaustion. I am experiencing it at times because I think, am I doing anything that's going to help change? The most powerful thing I did out of all of it was the Royal Commission. And that actually ignited me further. But I'd actually waned to the point of thinking, I'm just one person. They're not going to listen to me. I wondered why I was invited out of the blue. And I appreciated being invited. I've enjoyed the networking because I've never sat with another widow until that day. But I have got the fatigue now of we're not seeing any changes. We're not seeing any get down to the crunch with defence. I just wanted to say I remember doing this survey many years ago from um, when my children were in childcare and um, it was drop-down boxes and I could only say if they were good, great or excellent. They were my options. So I think, um, yes, definitely some input into um, the survey instrument. Maybe there needs to be some kind of pre-survey conversation that goes out through the relevant networks and then um always always the do you have anything else to add box brooke on the survey fatigue the research all the avenues that we are consulted or that we are able to have a say what can people feel when i guess those opinions those thoughts those replies to surveys don't seem to ever go anywhere like that's got to get to the stage where people are just like well i'm not doing another one because i haven't seen any results from any of the stuff that i've participated in absolutely you see disengagement there is no follow-through there is no accountability for the effort there's no payoff so it's can almost feel like a token gesture or something that, you know, we should be grateful that someone is giving us an avenue to vent rather than actual change. So even engaging in that can feel really frustrating and almost like colluding or compliance with you've given us an avenue, we've used it. It's almost a, it can almost be an act of defiance to not participate because it's not useful and we're not putting our energy into it but that also does not help us so we need a third option yeah definitely and I would definitely say that the solution definitely isn't for us to stop reaching out or to stop asking questions or to stop doing the surveys or taking part in the research the solution is actually for more of us more frequently to reach out to have that voice to consistently want to discuss these things So that I guess those organisations and those advocates that represent us don't feel that that the people aren't there and that the people don't want to have a voice that we're we're continually thought of and made part of the process. The solution isn't about stopping or not reaching out, it's actually about more of us having more of a voice more often. 
that and I think demanding some kind of face-to-face accountability I think would be would help so obviously surveys and you know we engage in those and then I think it would be helpful to request an outcome we request a report we request a presentation where someone comes out talks about our data puts it up in graphs and say okay where do we go from here I think that if we are going to engage and participate in the process there should be some feedback I think that's pretty standard way to expect if anyone is to give something that there needs to be some kind of accountability about that. I also don't know why it can't be at a unit level as well. You know, the units are typically smaller. You're able to sort of like Ghana, you could get the, I don't know, one of the OCs to target their group or one of the COs to target, you know, and so they like get partners together and say, all right, let's sit down and have an honest discussion. What are the issues you guys are facing with at the moment? How, you know, what are the problems that you're sort of seeing, you know, because at the moment the onus is on the partner to tell or the spouse to tell the serving member and then the serving member, you have to, you have to trust that they're going to raise it at work, that they're going to raise it and then they feel comfortable to raise it. And often they're not the ones who want to say anything. Whereas if you get a group of partners or spouses together who are able to have a frank discussion with the command structure to say, and then that command, the responsibility is then on them to start filling it through because if you know it shouldn't just be about external organizations this role should fall onto defense personnel serving personnel currently as well to look after the members of their unit and that already exists in terms of like feedback and and all of those sorts of things and I was actually thinking there was a comment I was going to make today but I actually don't want to make it on to be included in the podcast because I don't want it to then potentially be heard and have repercussions so you know that I'm still censoring myself because you you kind of have to in some ways because there's you just know that that it's not viewed or respected or you know it's not safe sometimes because there's still impacts on your partner's career and so I just think yeah I think there should be more level like beyond the external organizations yes there should be separate organizations that have separate oversight for partners but then there also needs to be something within the system because unless they start identifying that within the system, then they're not going to really make a difference because all of the external advocacy can happen to a point, but where does the crossover happen? And I think that one of the points to that is that changing the focus from being how does something impact the defence member to impacts on the defence partners and families is just as important because of that flow-on impact on the defence member. So, you know, like you said, the defence member can take an issue to his or her chain of command and put that forward but if there's no urgency in relation to that impacting defense or the defense member's job then there doesn't seem to be any flow-on impact from that if it was the defense member going forward with an issue that I can't go on that deployment because of this then they're more likely to be like oh we should look into that because there's 10 partners who are being impacted by that but it's changing that focus from the well-being in general of defence partners and families needs to be a focus, not just how it impacts the defence member. What I believe is that we need an independent body and a platform where defence departments, where defence members and their partners feel safe to be able to, there's a confidentiality thing, but they feel safe, that they're able to express it without any formal comeback on them because we know that still happens you know, if, if something's going down or if you've got a wipe that's a bit too loud or whatever, it does happen still today. Shock horror. It's always been happening. But we need an independent body. I, I did workshops many years ago up around the top of Australia uh, with the Aboriginal communities and the Department of Primary Industries in Queensland about creating farms to create jobs and income. And when I went around to each community, we sat and we talked about what that community needs to have in place to make this a success. 
and, and you know and we sat with the elders and it was so respectful it was so beautifully done and those changes happened that's the whole thing is that you sit it, it's not like you do need to do another 6,000 research studies you sit you talk you take advice and you create change I don't think that's rocket science and I don't think it's too hard to happen but it has to be independent of both departments I think so much money is being spent on all of these other things, all these other mechanisms, these research systems and forums and table talks and all the rest of it, but they're not getting the actual full voices. They're getting a select few, and those select few have only got there because they've been a little bit louder than the other or they've got the energy to do that. But there's the other ones that are still what I call being in the trenches. I believe we need that independent platform and we need it to be official and then we need it to be going from base to base and having the meetings and having it spread right across Australia so that we can start to turn around the change and start stopping the suicides and stopping the damage, but not just around that. Let's just have a healthy family unit for any veteran that joins. So let's talk about the partner identity. Identifying as a defence partner, there is a lot that comes with that, but it's not recognised as being anything other than someone that stands beside the defence member, supports them and, you know, supports their lifestyle really so that they're able to, you know, do their job and have that family unit or that house or that pet or whatever that that life maintained for them while they live defence life or while, while, while they are a defence member. And I think there's a contradiction there because you call it a lifestyle. I mean, we're all guilty of it at one point or another. We've used lifestyle. That word, I dislike it as much as I dislike the word resilient when it comes to our identities and who we are. But it makes it sound like there's something attractive and appealing about it. And so then that reinforces that view when you're talking to people, they're like, oh, but being in the military is great being defense and you get to move around the country. It's like, that's because what you see on social media from the agencies there to talk to us they publish the glossy side of it what you don't hear is this other side that we're talking about today and so it's really hard when people go oh it's a lifestyle like to a certain extent it's a lifestyle when it comes with posting every two or three years when it comes with all the challenges that you become aware of but it's not a lifestyle like say moving to the tropics to live in Mackay is I guess how is the wider defense partner, family, community represented when the strongest voices and the ones that are pushing forward with, hey, you need to listen to me, are are often those who are at crisis point when there are lots of needs for those families and partners that aren't yet at crisis point and could possibly be prevented from getting to crisis point if they were a bigger part of the conversation. There was no support for the partner. There was no support for the family. We were told we had marriage problems. So, you know, that story is still happening. So I think that we need more people on the ground to push this for change, but also to get people in place and not wait another four years for something to change. Julia, why is it important that more voices that are not a crisis point are included in the conversation or discussions when it comes to support services, anything to do with really defence partners and families? I think that that is the stopgap for them not getting to crisis point. And on a very personal note with that, during the pandemic, I was married unaccompanied from my husband. So he was in regional Victoria in the lockdown, in the thick of COVID before the rest of the states really had the height of the pandemic. And we weren't in crisis point when I reached out to all of the support agencies that are supposed to be there for us to say, 
well, what's going to happen? Like if this border closes, if it stays closed for six months, you're now moving my defence member who's unvaccinated in to take care of people in aged care. Like none of this is making sense to me. But what it is doing is it's triggered my anxiety to the highest point that it is. And now, you know, I can't go down there. He can't come home. Well, what's going to happen? And So we weren't at crisis point and I was trying to get the answers and I was trying to feed that back to the community that, they're onto this, guys. This is what they're doing. You know, another 10 days and we're going to have that answer from this minister. We're going to have the exemption of travel and reunion for our families. And it just didn't happen. And the end result was this went on for 21 months, backwards and forwards, me with the agencies trying to get an answer. And at the end of it, we were past crisis point. And again, there was still no help. And when I stepped up and said, I'm a defence partner and as a result of what I've been through, as a result of the grief that I am experiencing and now you've returned my husband home to me when he got injured and you don't want to care for him now because you're unable and you don't know how to deal with him. There's no support either and now I'm past the point of crisis or or I'm, I'm in the biggest crisis of my life. I was in the fight for my life. I had become suicidal myself. We were no longer dealing with just the suicidal ideation of defence members. We were dealing with that. And my greatest fear of it stepping into the partner and the family area had become real. And I'd been advocating about this for two years already. Nine out of 10 defence spouses wish they found out about Defence Bank sooner. Okay, I might have just made that up and they do sponsor my podcast, but I've checked them out and I think they're worth a look just for their banking app alone. It's award-winning and currently has a rating of 4.8 out of 5 in both the app and Google Play Store. It does everything a big bank app does with cool features like fast same-day payments, card alerts and controls, pin change functionality, savings roundup, spend tracker, the list goes on. Oh, and if you really want to go to a Defence Bank branch, you can. There are 33 on-base branches across Australia. And with many of their branch staff a Defence Spouse or Partner, you'll be talking to someone who just gets it. Banking as a Defence Spouse doesn't have to be hard. For more info, visit defencebank.com.au. But it never crossed my mind that the person I was advocating to help was going to then be me overnight. And there was no warning signs, nothing coming towards it. So if you listen to the people who are trying to say, there are families where if this continues on, they're going to reach crisis point or they're going to go beyond that. If you listen to those voices, you put the stop gap there and we won't get to that point. But I think I'm not the only partner with that fear that this is going on. I'm not the only partner putting my hand up. I've had so many when I've shared my story say, you've given me the courage to put my hand up and say that I'm at that point. I've been at that point. And, you know, we're coming forward and we're saying we're having to pay for our own medical assistance because we can call open arms, but they're saying, well, we can't deal with you for six months. We've got a backlog of requests still from the pandemic. So what what do you do? And this is why we need to have those voices coming forward to say it's not working or we're going to get at crisis point and I can't get any answers how to prevent getting there. And yeah, so at the end of the day, it's just the stopgap that's going to stop the crisis happening. So are we as a community tired of having to constantly advocate for ourselves and prove our need? And what I mean by that is still needing to explain the challenges we face when it comes to the everyday life of a defense family, of a defense partner, of a defense kid, of an ADF member connected to all all of those people and still not being provided with the tools and information for the impact of all of the challenges that come along with defense life your capacity is being restricted but also pushed to its limits Um, and then somebody tells you no 
But you then have to have the capacity to go forward and say, well, I'm not taking no as an answer. I'm going to double check that because I think you've given me a wrong answer. And it just adds to the grief and the burnout. And then we put these Band-Aid solutions on there, but we also don't go back and fix the problem. But people are so quick to rebuff when you come forward and ask for help or ask for an entitlement. I want to say that there are people out there that are working in roles that don't know policy. They don't know their own policy. And the number of times towards the end of my husband's military career where we went into meetings and we had received advice from the veteran community that said, based on this policy and here's the policy reference, this, this, this should happen. And then we sit in a meeting and they go, well, no, you can't have that and you can't do this and we're not doing that. I got to the point where I would say, do you have a reference for that? And then everything would go silent. And I would say, because I have a reference for you, I can give you a reference for what I have, the advice that I have received. Do you have a reference for the response that you have for me? And then in the end, my husband, he just looked at this guy and said, mate, she read it before she walked in the room. And um They went out after the meeting and they checked the policy and the policy was exactly what we were asking for. And they begrudgingly went, oh, well, all right then. But it shouldn't be an, oh, well, all right then. What it should be is, you know what, I've got that wrong. Yes, let's set this on the right path so that you get the correct experience that you're meant to have. And Brooke, I guess sometimes it can feel like something that defence partners or families are going through or need support with or need an allowance made or need an enticement or advice or whatever the case may be, if it's not going to impact the defence member, that there is no urgency. It seems like it's sometimes it can be based off what impact it will have on the defence member. So if it'll stop the defence member doing their job or stop them from posting or whatever the challenge will be in relation to the defence member, that it's only important when it impacts the defence member as opposed to, I guess, having that duty of care for the whole family, uh, the partner, the family, the defence member, because anything that impacts the the partner and family ultimately impacts the defence member at some point. Absolutely. And that's something that has come up time and time again, Often when barriers are being hit, if it's been, if it's been framed in a way that, okay, well, if this isn't fixed or I aren't, aren't getting any movement around this, then, you know, we're going to have to call the spouse back or, you know, we um, this is going to impact your training, your deployment, et cetera. That's often when we see rapid movement and solutions suddenly coming up. And that is really, really sad, really disappointing because, you know, we are the foundation of, of their career we we support them to go to work go to deployment we keep the home base secure we support you know we support them in all avenues I mean we know this I don't need to reiterate that so not intervening to support until it's crisis mode is not economical it's not good for maintaining military members in their roles because they're feeling that pull between their families and their careers it lacks foresight to not take these things seriously. And as we've mentioned, it's not that hard in terms of these problems that we run into, you know, issues with childcare, issues with isolation, issues with employment, issues with supports around moving, study, all these things, you know, they're happening again and again all the time. The data's there. If there was intervention, if there was someone to liaise or advocate for people that were more accessible, 
the bigger, more expensive things down the line, emergency trips back from across the border because something's happening, would have been potentially not impacting the military exercise if they had allowed, you know, not to, I'll go with my personal experience, but not to pay for a flight to have a family member come and stay. You know, those small interventions would co- would save money, save jobs, and it's a real lack of foresight that the people on the ground supporting the defence member to be in the defence is not being considered until the impact on the military is being threatened. That is a very short-sighted way to continue forward. Yeah, so I guess psychologically, what kind of impact would that have on defence partners and families when we may constantly feel like we know that the defence member is the employee of defence and that that's their priority. But as a consequence, the family and the partner sign up to live defence life and there's challenges that come along with that. So when there's no duty of care by defence to also extensively look out for defence partners and families, psychologically, what kind of impact can that have on someone when we feel like we we are along for the ride, but if we have any issues for that ride, we don't have any agency in regard to meeting those challenges or having any sort of say in regard to getting support services or whatever we need when it comes to any problems, challenges, or just, you know, living defence life. It would make a lot of sense if someone would be feeling that they're not considered, not taken care of, and they're take and there's no sense of reciprocity. So you, you know, you I guess you've signed up. We all say, you know, signed up. What people say to us, signed up. Knew what we were signing up for. Absolutely not. We are when you give more than you are receiving, or you're not being seen, heard, considered. You're having to choose to have the secondary career when you have your own dreams. You're doing a lot more of the childcare. You don't have any influence or agency in that in that reciprocity you start to become resentful you start to become disengaged sometimes you will become angry resentful sometimes you will push against and it will be much harder for your your partner to do their job you know it can impact your relationship it can be very difficult to support if you have children to support them and not feel resentment for them as well if there's that lack of reciprocity and you're not getting your needs met, you will feel resentment and you'll pull back. And that can start to fracture families. That can start to fracture your sense of self, your sense of identity, your sense of safety, connection. We become isolated. We become angry. And often we fear judgment around that. So we start to hide these feelings and that's when shame comes in. So that can funnel into feelings of hopelessness and depression and anxiety. As Julia mentioned, you know, not having any agency reaching out for help and not seeking it, not feeling like even your partner's being taken care of either, your feeling of safety is going to be impacted pretty significantly. Your life is in the hands of essentially a service that is not even seeing you. So your core sense of safety is completely being impacted. Yeah, I think also what we're not taking into account here is what the physical impact, you know, when we're talking about we slip into depression and all the rest of it, because it's such a slippery slope, as we all know. And we're not talking about the overall impact of, and uh, Marcel, you might be interested in this little bit of research. After Michael died, I was a bank manager for the National Bank. I was a value of their properties and everything. And I went back to work and I, you know, ran Castle, Ta- Castle Hill three times a week like a lunatic, brought a Volvo to stay very healthy and safe for my children. You know, you did all these tick box things after you've lost your partner. And I remember 
I, I was at work one day and all of a sudden I started showing symptoms of being unwell. I went to my doctor. He did the blood tests. Um, he thought I should go and have a breast scan. When I was at work the next day, I get a call, just thought it might have been a cyst, might need some antibiotics. And he said, you need, you need to come see the doctor. So I was like, oh. This is too much in my day, you know. So I go to the doctor. He said, you have a brain tumour. You have a pituitary tumour. And he went on to tell me that he referred me to a professor who uh, specialised in uh, pituitary tumours in Brisbane. And I went to see him and he said, the particular tumour you have, we've researched extensively because we have a set group of men and they were the Bosnian soldiers that were tortured in the torture camps from the Serbian army. And what that happened was this particular pituitary tumour of a prolactinoma was actually related. That was the first research they could do to relate it to extreme stress. And this professor looked at me and he said, but you wouldn't have it for that reason because you haven't been in a war zone. I just sat back and straightened myself because I didn't realise then I was 43 years old thinking I was fit and healthy. But what the long-term effect physically has on us as well. And nobody talks about that because all of a sudden you're a partner and your partner's out of the military, but you're still living with the symptoms and you're still dealing with what I was described as by one person. Oh, Madonna, you were a woman in a boat with one oar and everyone was in the boat and you're rowing and going in circles and going in circles. And it's these same stories that we're all listening to, isn't it? And what we're all talking about, we're in a boat we have one or we have a veteran at the front, our children beside us, and we're all just trying to hold on. And it's it's just, it's not acceptable. But what I believe is that to enable friends and family or anyone you know that is living a veteran life or living with a veteran out of the service, that we have to start coming together to have a voice and we need a platform. And today I find that it's X platform and it's fantastic because hopefully that gets word out more. But we need a platform of people to know that it's not just you and you're not alone. So how I look at it now is that voice community lived experience we all have to start standing up because we won't the change won't happen unless we create it from from the ground up and i don't believe that dva and open arms should be related i believe in open arms should be a completely independent body i don't believe that anyone that works for open arms shouldn't have they all should be specialists in trauma and there should be specialists in trauma for children and education. What I saw in America was a lot of education around empathy again. They lose their empathy because when they've been in extreme research situations, they have to lose empathy to survive. But what happens when they come home is they, they're just changed. You know, like we all see, we've all seen it. They actually reteach empathy to soldiers in America. They have to because it's too cold otherwise, you know, like so. We're not doing any of that grassroots stuff here. And the sooner we have more voices, the better. And if more voices come out of this podcast, I would be so excited and pleased. I'm still in the middle of the Royal Commission as well, but I'm not going to stop talking. But I just have a real passion about making sure the partners of today and children of today don't have to go down that same road. And that's important. That's why to get out there and create a community movement because how many current serving members in the military? I think it's just over 61,000 and they're estimating that in total number with the families and dependents we would be 1.2 million like considering the veterans that have transitioned out as a whole community as all the family numbers but that's the the people that they know and have identified but yeah they estimate after the census 1.2 million. 
And when you think about that, that's all those voices that have been silenced. There's so many of us. But all you ever see, all I ever saw or heard of was this, this hand-selected few of people who had the voice and have had the voice and held on to the voice. And that's where it has to change. We have to change who has the voice. Let's look openly and honestly at the ways that we are represented and the avenues everyday defence partners and families have available to them. I guess on a local level, we have family liaison officers through DMFS. Uh, We have Defence Families Australia who advocate for us and they have state and territory delegates in regards to representing us in, in the different areas. They cover huge areas, which sometimes makes it hard for them to get to those areas and engage face-to-face with people. Sometimes they have positions that are empty uh, between staff, between people starting in those positions, which I guess leaves an area without a delegate or representation, which then makes it hard to build trust and relationship with those people who advocate for us. Um, The same goes for the family liaison officers. They cover huge areas. Sometimes there aren't people in the positions. A lot of the time, those positions are part-time. And then we also have the veterans and families advocate, Gwen Cherney, who is just one person. She covers the whole of Australia in regard to that position. And again, I guess it's just sometimes those avenues are seen as crisis points as opposed to people being able to connect with those avenues to maybe talk about what was good in their location so that you know, in the next location, maybe that could be support and services that are provided. There's not necessarily this consistency of care around the country. There's different things that happen in different locations. So, you know, even having avenues to share experience, good good experiences, challenging experiences to have an impact on what is provided for us would be obviously a positive way to engage with the community to have an impact and feel like we're having a voice. So in regards to those avenues, let's discuss how those avenues are representing us. What I've sort of witnessed is that the military and DVA have that culture of silence. Had they wanted something to change where more families had a voice and more people wanted to be listened to, they would have raised that culture of silence around this issue, this very issue, because really the front line for a veteran is his family. This can change. We can change this. But we just have to start being a stronger voice. And um, once again, I'm going back to that again. But I just believe that it's just been going on for way too long. And, you know, we look at Facebook and we see all these different people on Facebook that work for the departments and work for defence. And they're just at all these events. And I'm thinking, well, what's changing? Nothing's happening. You know, like we have this huge hierarchy of a lot of money being spent on their wages, but what's happening on the ground with a partner who's got a newborn, her husband's deployed, she's lost, she has got no family connection. Through COVID, I don't know how they managed. You know, like I just look at all of that. Where are we to support the partner while she's supporting the veteran? We're not. I can't find an organisation that actually is doing that. That is the major problem. We don't have an organisation, which is a completely independent body. It can be funded but not have to report to. We don't need them reporting to Defence. We don't need them on base. We can have an office on base, but they're an independent body. So that person there could be a contact where you could actually seek help for whatever issue is going on in your world. And that person should be approachable. It should be able to be a phone call away. You're not going to get flipped to, sorry, Brooke, but a psychologist. on the, You know, sometimes when you ring up and you're crying or something, they'll go, oh, 
I'll just get our psychologist to call you. No, I want a solution. I don't need a psychologist right now. I need a solution. I need someone to say, okay, we can have a conversation about this. Da, 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 da. Let's see what we can put in place. We need people who are powerful enough to actually say, okay, let's get this thing rolling and, and put out some pilot programs. Now, it's not, it's not going to be a huge expense, but we're going to have someone that's knowledgeable. And I know you were talking before about the, the government employees that are put on bases, but really, when you, Marcel, when your husband arrived home, you heard from this department? Sorry, it's just wrong. It's wrong on so many levels, but I really believe we've got to start talking more to each other. And I just think that we just need to keep this conversation going where then we start putting input into groups that actually empower themselves within themselves and we just guide them on, okay, we need your numbers, we need to talk about this, we need your ideas. Because I'm, I'm a bit like a lot of people, I've got that fatigue from all those tick and flicks. And, you know, I, when you don't see change, you don't want to do them anymore and you don't want to participate. So that's yeah. when you start to shut down and withdraw from the community. But it shouldn't be that way. It's not that hard. I just wanted to talk about representation. My representation most of the time was my husband and he was my conduit and he was my access to services. But when he was deployed and when he was on exercise or when he was uh, away on training, he wasn't there. So I either had to disturb and interrupt him to get help or I had to deal with it on my own. He would then take those concerns back to his workplace and I feel that they don't know what to do. And I think that's why we're not getting anything done because they don't know what to do. Madonna's comment about this code of silence, I think the reason why people are quiet is because they have no solution. But is it that they don't know what to do and they don't have a solution because they don't talk to us and ask us what we need and not enough of us are in that conversation or represented when it comes to what do we need, what do we want, how can we be supported? I wondered... Could it be that this is typically a male-dominated and task-oriented environment and when you want these kinds of strong emotional issues to be sorted out, that typically it's women that get behind this ball and get it rolling and get things moving along and maybe they're set up to fail in that regard it's not an it's not an excuse for them but maybe it's an argument in favor of change in terms of some of the decision making it's largely masculine and when I say I don't think they know what to do I don't think that they have the intestinal fortitude to take on this kind of emotional issue so I guess realistically, what can defence partners and families do right now to be heard and find a way into the conversation? And what questions should they be asking? What should they be looking at? What can we, what avenues can we or advice as people who are in the community that, you know, obviously have come together on a podcast and have a voice and we're all doing our individual things. How can we empower defence partners and families to become part of the conversation if they haven't previously been? One thing is your platform is very open. They can come forward. They can say, I have a story that I want to tell. I want to tell my story. It's very cathartic for them. It's absolutely safe. It's just like sitting on this Zoom call that we've done today for anyone who doesn't know, and it just gets recorded. I think the other thing to that is for any partner listening who thinks, oh, I can't do a podcast, but I would love to do one. By telling your story, by coming forward, that volume tells us where the areas are, what the topics are, what the needs are. 
which allows somebody like you, Beck, to go, okay, well, this is what I'm hearing from the community. So then you can take those issues forward as well. And then I think it's just making partners aware of the official channel. So when we're talking about DMFS, if we're talking about DFA, if we're talking about toll, if we're talking about DHA, which are the correct avenues to go to to give them feedback? Should you continue to chase up your case manager or can you escalate that toll question query complaint somewhere else where it's going to get picked up? same thing with DHA are you better off ringing a 1300 number they give you or should you use the email that is picked up more often um, and gets a quicker response time because there's a KPI attached to it and I think for any of us who know the answers to those questions and who know how to escalate through the system sharing that information and encouraging partners to take note of what we're sharing. Yeah and Brooke I guess it's also about giving defence partners and families that confidence and empowering them to use those avenues, but also that they're not just strictly restricted to those avenues. There's lots of other ways that they can do that. They can contact their local MP, they can get in contact with their local council, their federal member, whoever it is. They're not just restricted to the avenues that they're being told. They can go down like, you know, for instance, if you have an issue with DHA, it's not just that you, you're restricted to sending that email. And if you hear nothing back, oh, well, that's the end of it. Like you're, if you're going to live, be living defence life for however many years, you don't just want to be like, okay, well, I tried that avenue and nothing happened. We need to be able to empower defence partners and families to take their voice, you know, further if they feel that they they need to do that or if they feel that they haven't been heard or they feel that, you know, they, they want to change something. And also defence partners and families knowing that it's not it's not you being ungrateful, it's not you complaining it's just you wanting to have a voice about something that isn't quite right or isn't sitting well for your family or could be adjusted or could be changed because there could be, you know, 500 other families that are thinking the same thing but don't know how to have a voice or don't know how to come forward or, or don't have the confidence to do that. Yeah, and much like the, you know, the Defence Force learn their chain of command, and learn the hierarchy and learn which way they need to escalate their concerns, I mean, it would be very helpful for defence spouses to have a similar hierarchy or flowchart of this isn't working and if we're here to dead end, then where do I escalate next? Having that information being forthright and transparent and given to us rather than us having to seek that again and again individually. Look, I want to urge um, defence spouses to put things in writing. Um, the pen is mightier than the sword. And um, if I can give an example, we were moving out of a house, we wanted um, to sort something out with painting, and uh, we couldn't get anyone to pick up any of their phones. So I started sending emails through their website. And what I discovered is those emails are linked to KPIs. And the email, when you liaise with your DHA case manager that's one person but those emails go to like eight people and my husband actually got a phone call that said can you please tell your wife to stop sending emails but answer my question and I'll go away and I'll leave you alone you know um, every instance where I have found that I have needed to have action has come from writing an email and prior to email um, from writing letters. So um, just bear in mind that the pen for many, many, many years has always been mightier than the sword. So please put your concerns in writing and um, definitely use those email networks through the web pages um, so that they can go to multiple people so that there's multiple eyes on the problem. And that also goes for 
when you've had a positive experience as well, put it in writing so that they know that that you've had that positive experience so that when other defence partners or family members ask for that same support or service in their location, they've got that in writing testimonial from people saying this is actually really had a positive impact on me and other people should be able to access that. Yeah, I would sort of twofold for defence partners who want to, one would be support others um, who have questions, don't just because their questions are something that you might know or you, you know, don't put anyone down or sort of think, you know, think differently of them because that they they don't know the answer and they they um, potentially yes sometimes things people might have been able to look them up but you don't know their own situation you don't know what access information they've got to so just be supportive and try and answer their question as best you can um, without being judgmental and the other thing is ask the questions there as I said there are so many Facebook posts out there post pages out there with so many of them like post anonymously on a group that you know if you don't feel comfortable putting your name to a post you know people that seem to be really responsive and really keen to engage um, and if you ask questions and then if you want to be involved you know maybe look at reaching out to some of the people who post and sort of see like ask them if you can even like share it in a story on your own page if something resonates with you so you're like not written by me but this is something that I, I agree with or I sort of like if you and start tagging the senior people who make the decisions and you know like social media is a very easy way to kind of start advocating on like a grassroots level if you don't really feel comfortable doing anything but if you want to be more anonymous yeah definitely write letters to the people who matter in making these decisions and also talk to your partner and engage with them and see what avenues lie for you within their unit and their chain of command to to raise these issues see if they they might know if they can talk to a a partner or someone else that's in the unit to give them support or give them advice on or things that might have already been raised help put their voice to continue to push forward that way yeah because guaranteed there'll be other people with that question who haven't been or felt confident in asking it, but also guarantee there'll be people listening to this discussion who have gone, well, yeah, I've wanted to have this conversation, but I didn't know how to, and I didn't know who to do it with. And obviously this discussion is just a discussion. It's just putting it out there so that people can hear that there's other people out there that want to have a voice, that want to come together and maybe change some things and just ask the question. Well, thank you so much, Marcel, Madonna, Joanna, Brooke and Julia for coming on the podcast and taking part in this discussion. Hopefully there's people out there that have had some light bulb moments or that maybe it's given them the confidence to write the letter or they ask the question or put their hand up and be involved in a conversation. I so hope you were able to relate or take something away from today's episode. There are definite ups and downs to military life, but let's get the conversation happening so we can see that we are all in this together. We are all just doing our best. So until next week, you got this. Let's do this together one day at a time. Thank you so much for tuning in. If this episode has touched you, helped you, or given you that extra confidence to keep going, to continue to hold down the home front, to continue to do all the things, I would so appreciate it if you could pop into Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the podcast and leave a review, a comment about what you would like to hear more of, or just some encouraging words. If you want to suggest a guest, I am always looking for new people to talk to. You can do that by jumping over to the website www.militarylife.com.au and clicking on our podcast page. I would love to hear from you. 